And we're back with another episode of Center of Attention, the sports podcast coming out on a Monday. Not quite. I think it's the fourth, fourth in a row. So this is the month anniversary of the sports shows, and we finally do have a live sporting event to talk about. If you follow the Center of Attention Twitter, hopefully um, that tweet made you guys laugh. Um, that's kind of how I like to do my humor, a little bit more tongue-in-cheek and... Um, we got tons to talk about with that stuff. Um, and then I do have some other topics that I wanted to talk about. We're going to see if we can figure out um, what the NHL and NBA, if they've had any more developments in their stories. Um, I wanted to talk about the last dance because I know that a couple weeks ago on, um, excuse me, the regular center of attention show, I was talking about um, probably starting Tiger King. I tried to start it and I, I just couldn't really get into it right now. So, um, that's where that's at. Uh, but I did take a look at The Last Dance, the Michael Jordan documentary that ESPN premiered last Sunday and then um, had episode one and two and then episode three and four come out tonight as I'm recording this on April 26th. It comes out. Um, there's 7 p.m. Eastern, so still a little bit of time. Or 9 p.m. Eastern, so 7 p.m. in Colorado where I live. And... Uh, That'll be an interesting episode because this week is going to be focusing on Dennis Rodman. So uh, not only is this the the country around us starting to open up a little bit, the Colorado stay-at-home order, I believe, was lifted today. I haven't heard anything otherwise. And driving around town, the big signs, uh, when you come in and out of Gunnison, if you've ever been here, those big highway signs that have the light-up messages normally say, watch out for deer. Lately, they've been saying um, to to stay at home and, and do that, do your part that way. And then today, um, while I was on a little impromptu adventure, Kyle and I decided to take a drive, and I told him that we should go along the highway heading towards um, Alamosa, uh, State Highway 114 in Colorado, just because there's a lot of cool... Uh, there's a lot of farmland over there, so I, I like to go out there, especially this time, and see the different farm animals. It's always a, a good choice, um, and it's always a calming presence, and that's kind of what I've been doing since I am wrapping up on my time living here. Um, I have had some struggles, but I do know of a few places that I'm really going to miss. Um, we went to one of them yesterday. We Actually, two of them. Um, Kyla and I, we went out to uh, Spot and Taylor Canyon, hiked up a little bit, and then just kind of hung out and sat around in the trees amongst the forest there. And uh, then we also went to the to the west end of the river that's still inside of inside of the city limits of Gunnison, not over by the water the White Rock Water Park. Um, but if you go as you're going along Highway 50 towards the west end of town. Instead of going around the curve, if you just go straight, you can get to the riverway, and um, it's normally where the river runs pretty high. Uh, I know two years ago when there was a lot of snow, uh, those the river was on about even with me on the other side, um, next to the mountain. That there's just a lot of water, and uh, it was really loud over there a couple years ago. Yesterday, not as much. Um, I felt like we got a little bit more snow than we had been getting, but. Maybe that was just in in my own head. It was kind of all at once, and then it pretty much stopped. But I 
you guys, thank you for listening last week. I hope um, Kyle's episode, Idiots Anonymous, and then the draft bonus episode. Uh, wasn't sure how I, I would enjoy that or how you guys would take it, but it, it seems like those of you who did want to listen um, and get my reaction to those to the the picks in the first round enjoyed it and um yeah it's uh it it was a a busy week last week um thursday through saturday obviously the nfl draft and then i was making sure that i got all my schoolwork done or at least as much as i could have and i've done that so far um i think i have two more discussion posts that i have to make for a couple of my classes and um then academically i'm all wrapped up with my uh commitment to gunnison i'll still have to take care of my residence life commitment and make sure that i close the rooms down and um that kind of thing but it's um been a little bit lighter with your guys's listenership on each episode but we are kind of coming to some point of a consistency um I know that it was going to be a little bit different with the pandemic and everybody being at home because even my mom, when she listens, she normally listens when she's sitting at work. And now that she's in the house uh, with everybody else in the family, too, it's it's a little bit more difficult to listen sometimes. But thank you guys for making the commitment to try and and find them. And, And you guys know I say this almost every time, but this is my favorite one of my favorite things that I've done. Um, I can't live broadcast right now or do. Uh, Gunnison Sports Talk Radio, so this is where I get to do all of that, hone my skills, make sure that I'm not falling off or anything, and um, I feel like if you're, because everything that I've done and everything that I've tried to commit to and try and be the best to, um, I've always gone and and made sure that I've done a little bit more than everybody else, just because um, uh, I can't stop myself most of the time. I am I have a little bit of an obsessive personality when it comes to that kind of stuff in that sense. But uh, this is, um, I think that it's the best way for me at least to make sure that I am doing everything that I can to give you guys the best content and make sure that um, the the limited amount of listeners that we do get on some episodes still enjoy themselves. It doesn't matter if it's a million people listening or one person listening. If I can entertain that one person, uh, I'm going to try and do that. And with that, we'll get into today's topics. Um, First, I wanted to start with The Last Dance just because that was my biggest surprise um, of last week. I wasn't expecting... I I kind of was of the mind that I was just going to wait for it to hit Netflix because after the series airs on ESPN, it's going directly to Netflix. Um, It's a 10-part series, and they're releasing two parts a week, so it'll be over the next – the remaining four weeks, um, if I still count tonight. So – and it started off – I've – I was too young for the Bulls dynasty back in the 90s, um, and I never got to see Michael Jordan really play in a live game because I wasn't – either watching basketball at the time or uh, I was actually I couldn't one as soon as I would have been able to remember that I had watched him he would he would have already been retired I'm pretty sure Um, I think he was in Washington at that point not in Chicago anymore but I really really enjoyed it for a couple reasons I think it's really 
good for um, people to see somebody like Michael Jordan. I know that we recently, especially with the people who were really affected by the Kobe Bryant tragedy with him and his daughter dying in a helicopter crash, I think uh, people started to understand how much of just a a pure winner he is. And um, there's people who debate whether or not Kobe was just as crazy as Michael Jordan or if he was similar but not um, as far, didn't take anything as far as Jordan did. Because if you watch that documentary, he's chasing, and he says this, and a lot of athletes say that, is that the next ring is the best ring. And I just don't quite see that being 100% honest in most of the athletes. But if you look on Michael Jordan's face when he tells a reporter that, that they're, they're going for six, they want to have two three-peats um, and own the 90s in basketball. That's what their goal was, and that's what they're trying to do. So um, I really see – you can see that in his eyes, and I think that's where the intrigue of the documentary comes in because – other than that, I mean, he he was in Space Jam, but that's obviously a character that he's playing, even though he was playing himself. Um, this is really the first time that you get to see how he was off of the court. Everybody knows he was an ultra ultra competitor on the court. There's a lot of people that can turn it on and turn it off. Well, I guess and that and that that was brought up in the documentary last week. Uh, with Roy Williams, the legendary coach of the North Carolina Tar Heels. When Michael was going there, uh, he was a freshman in 1980. When he was going there, he was Roy Williams was just an assistant coach, and he said he's only seen one player that was able to turn it on and off, and that was Michael Jordan, and he never turned it off. So he was uh, – it's the first two episodes, the first one was mainly focusing on Michael – and how he became the icon that he was and where he started from. And that was really interesting. And then the second episode of the series last week focused on Scottie Pippen and his um, soap opera that he had leading into the 97-98 season that would have been their uh, sixth championship. It was 97-98 or 98-99. I think it was 97-98 that they're following um, and it was the that was the year that they won their last championship, and that was interesting just because um, a lot of people. The reason Tiger King was so popular is because they had such a good antagonist in it that you just hated, and that was Carol Baskin. Um, I haven't seen enough of the Tiger King documentary to to know if um, she really is as bad as people say, or if people are blowing it out of proportion, but. On the last dance, there is a tried and true antagonist, and that is the general manager and the the player personnel guy, the guy who actually assembled the team, and then he's also the guy who blew it up. But uh, Jerry Krause, um, I was listening to a podcast last week where he was talking, they were talking about the documentary, and when they were talking about the documentary, um, they they mentioned Jerry Krause. So I knew the name going in. Um, but I wasn't, I guess, quite sure what exactly his role was going to be. And uh, when, as soon as I turned it on, you could tell from the second or third moment in that documentary that he was not going to be the lovable uh, little little guy who came from nothing and then made himself successful in his field and was one of the better general managers of the decade in, in all sports. 
Um, Jerry started with the eventual owner of the Chicago Bulls. And uh, I'm going to look up his name real quick just so that we can reference him. Jerry Reisendorf. So Jerry Reisendorf started off as the owner of the Chicago White Sox and then transferred over. And um, before Michael Jordan got there, they go over how Chicago um, had some championships. But at that point, it was much more of a Bears town or a Blackhawks town. And the Bulls were kind of thought of as uh, the team that nobody really wanted to 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 um, take it, take ownership of because they had been successful but never have gotten to the pinnacle of the sport and at that time the Cubs though they were in the middle of their World Series drought were still making moves to try and get back to the playoffs the White Sox were good so you had the people in the north side of Chicago that liked the Cubs and the Bears and the Blackhawks people in the south side of Chicago that liked the White Sox the Bears and the Blackhawks and the Bulls were just kind of there, and uh, the team was struggling. Ownership before Jerry Reisendorf decided that it was time to sell because they weren't um, capable of making the moves that they needed to, and they didn't see themselves being able to make any money out of that situation. So Jerry Reisendorf buys the team, and then Jerry Krause goes from a scout for the Chicago White Sox to the vice president and basically general manager of the Chicago Bulls. And they talk a lot about how Jerry started off. He was very much a blue-collar background guy. His family was not successful, but they worked hard, and he was good at his job and knew how to manage people. And um, he was able to separate the player from the uh at first, at least, he was able to separate the player from the person that he would come in contact with. And that is important in that position because when you're an executive of a team like that, you have to make sure that everybody is per- being able to perform at the highest level. And your job is based off of the performance of other people that you can't really control unless they screw up and you want to get rid of them. So that was the beginning of the Jerry Krause story. And then as it goes, they talk about how he had alienated himself from the team. He actually hated the amount of success that they had, as crazy as it sounds, because he was never given the credit that he felt like he deserved. And he probably did deserve a little bit more credit than what he was getting. Everybody was focusing on the players. And um, I said it last week, it's not about the X's and the O's. It's way more about the Jimmy's and the Joe's. And that's true for all sports not just basketball and I think I was referencing it in football last week when I had first said that phrase but Jerry Krause was of the mind that the players don't win championships the executives win championships because they're the ones who assemble the team the team wouldn't be in the position to win championships without the executives and he put way more importance on himself than Michael Jordan Dennis Rodman, Scottie Pippen, um, Steve Kerr, anybody of the, any one of the guys that were on the floor. So that was where the original rift came in. Um, and then there was, so in the Michael Jordan portion of the series so far, 
and uh, he was. They they talk about it there because they start off by being in before the ninety six ninety seven season, ninety seven ninety eight excuse me, where they go and play in a tournament in Paris, um, and while they're there, Scotty is not playing because he was injured at the end of the season before, and he decided that he wasn't gonna screw up his summer and rehab an injury when he had free time he was going to come back get the surgery right before the season started and the players were back um, at the team facilities and then rehab and take as long as it, as it could because he felt like if he was going to get paid um, during this portion of the year that's when he was going to get get right that was um, the same mindset Shaq had with the Lakers that's why him and Kobe didn't necessarily get along all the time and um, that is the approach that Scottie Pippen took. So that meant that Michael Jordan had to corral everybody who was just starting to deal with the fact that they were all superstars at that moment, and that they had the possibility of being the greatest team ever assembled, and they could prove that if they finished the second three-peat in the last seven years. <clears throat> and Michael was originally brought in by Jerry Krause. He was the third pick overall to the Bulls. And there were two players picked before Michael Jordan, um, the Trailblazers, and I think the Supersonics both picked two different players instead of Michael Jordan, and Jordan ends up going to Chicago. Um, and when he gets there, the Bulls are in just about as bad of a situation as you probably could expect. Uh, Jordan actually laughs for about 20 or 30 seconds because he had never heard them referred to as this, but one of the reporters interviewing Michael Jordan for the documentary goes, this, it used to be called the Traveling Chicago Cocaine, Cocaine Circus. And then he goes in and talks about his first year in the league, and they're at a hotel on, a ro on the road, and he's trying to find people and knocking on doors, knocking on doors. Finally, he knocks on a door, and then somebody asks, who is it? He says that it, he identifies himself and that he's looking for people, looking for everybody. So they let him in because they think, oh, he's just a rookie. He doesn't know what we do here. So we'll get him indoctrinated into this. We'll show him that if he wants coke, cocaine's on the table. Uh, if you want to smoke pot, pot's over there. If you want a hooker, hookers are here. And um, it, it wasn't Michael Jordan's style, but that was the culture of the team that Jerry Krause and Jerry Reisendorf originally took over and then drafted Michael Jordan. So that was the foundation that they had to change in order to make it farther. And the rift that started between Jerry Krause and Michael Jordan, I think, goes... So he played... Jordan played originally for three years with the Bulls without Scottie Pippen. And the, last, the first year he got hurt and couldn't finish. Um, and then he tried to come back and finish out... A season, the season after he got hurt, um, and then he was given a limit, a minute restriction, because at that point they were talking. Jerry Reisendorf was speaking on the documentary and said Michael Jordan had broken his foot in a place where, since the blood supply is so low and limited to that area, there's a possibility that your foot is not going to heal from where he broke it. And he had gone back to North Carolina to finish his degree in rehab, um, not very uncommon for athletes to do. And 
he is able to work himself up to the point where he can play five on five again and he feels like he's great ready to go the doctor still says that it's about 90 percent healed and it could be fixed for a little bit extra time or he could probably play on it and, and it would be fine but if he's to re-aggravate this injury normally it'd be the end of his career and there's about a 10 percent chance that that is a possibility and in michael's head it's a 10% chance he's going to hurt, but that means there's a 90% chance that he's going to come back and be able to play like he wants to. Reisendorf and Kraus decide that he's a little bit more valuable of an asset, and they don't want him to come back right away. They compromise at the minutes restriction. I think he was given seven minutes in the first half, seven minutes in the second half, and at the end of 14 minutes, if Michael Jordan was still on the court, the coach at the time, because it wasn't um, Phil, Phil Jackson yet, would have lost his job. So Michael didn't appreciate that because he felt like it was bad it was bad showing in that they didn't care if the the executives didn't care if the team had a better chance of winning with Michael on the court. They were only interested in protecting their asset that can make them money whether or not the team was good because Michael was still a phenomenon and was scoring 60 points by himself in a game without taking a three-point shot. There's also the rumor going around that this was the first tank job that sports had seen at that point. Um, it's talked about a lot now where teams tank in the NFL and the NHL to have a better chance of being put into the lottery so that they get a high draft choice. And then at some point they're going to be able to turn their organization around. I'm of the mind that first – you should only be picking in the top five of the draft. And after one or two years, maybe two years being if you really colossally screwed up everything the first time you had the pick in the top five, then after that you should be com competitive enough with free agency and everybody else not being able to just maintain the same team that they have. You should be able at some point to come back after you have the first pick in the top five of the draft. The Bulls wanted to get greedy a little bit, Jordan thought, and get back into the lottery. So they were pulling him off the court purposely, and they told the coach that he couldn't play him longer than his minutes restriction or he would be fired. And Jordan thought that it was because Kraus wanted to lose so that they got a better pick, and that would be what makes his job easiest, even though he knows that Jordan's job is to score baskets and win basketball games. Krause's job was in direct contradiction of that, so that's why Michael Jordan ends up not liking Jerry Krause, and that's the first kind of seed that's planted where you can see this dynasty starting to unravel. Then it goes to episode two, Scottie Pippen episode. Uh, Scottie Pippen's from very rural Arkansas, and uh, he's, I think, in a family of 12. His dad is paralyzed from a stroke and i believe his brother is paralyzed as well either from a medical condition or something else happening i can't really remember at this point and when scotty pippen is drafted he's drafted by seattle and seattle had made a deal with jerry Krause the night before that they were going to pick scotty and then trade him to chicago since chicago had won too many games and made the playoffs so they weren't able to get back into the lottery that way they got the best player in that year's draft. They have the best player in the NBA at that point in Michael Jordan, and they're able to bring in free agents to try and fill up these holes. And I think this is where it's going to get to tonight 
when they do the Dennis Rodman episode, and then I'm not sure if the fourth episode is going to go back to somebody else. Um, I, th- I think it'll probably end up being different people's perspectives. Most Everybody's still involved, but different people's focus are different people for each episode. Um, the Rodman episode was going to be interesting because he would be the free agent that they got from Detroit, and uh, he was the outlandish guy he he really doesn't he makes me uncomfortable is what it does he he's odd and he prides himself on being odd he wanted to be the weirdest guy in the nba he he was able to but he could rebound to basketball and play defense like nobody's business and when you have scotty pippen and michael jordan and steve kerr guys on the floor who like to score points it's good to have a guy like a michael jordan or dennis rodman who can rebound and doesn't care if he scores the points or not. He's more than happy with an assist if uh, it means that the team is is able to win. He doesn't need to be the one with the ball in his hands. It's um, In that sense, it's a little bit more along the lines of LeBron's personality than the Michael Jordan or the Kobe Bryant personality. Found an article that ESPN released this week, April 24th talking about the Dennis Rodman episode. Oldest son was five in his second month of kindergarten when his teacher asked why his dad hadn't been seen in the pickup line for a couple of weeks. He's living with Dennis Rodman, my son answered, dripping nonchalance, as if this ta- this ta- this were a task every Catholic school dad would eventually get around to completing. The living arrangement was brief, roughly two weeks for in the fall of 1995, and more of a necessity than a choice. I was working under an extreme deadline to write Rodman's autobiography, Bad As I Want to Be. So this is an article by Tim Keown, a writer, ESPN senior writer. And he was the one who was the ghostwriter for Rodman's autobiography. And um, I'm probably, I'm definitely going to read this article before I I watch the Rodman episode tonight so that I can figure out why (laughs) he was as odd as he is. That makes a little bit more sense now. They show him. Uh, I had never seen the picture before, but apparently Rodman, when he and Madonna got married, he wore the wedding dress, and then Madonna wore the tuxedo, um, just because I, I guess because they needed to be different for whatever reason. But that's the I I would rec- highly recommend the Last Dance. It's on ESPN. If you have um, cable and you have ESPN in your package, you're able to log into the ESPN app and um, you can watch the documentary. They have the um, un- unrated and then they have the edited version depending on if you're watching with your kids or not. Um, I'm sure that there's a lot of people who they were just born and now they have their their own kids and they were born in, in a place where they could see the greatness of Michael Jordan and this Bulls team so they'd be watching with their younger kids to try and instill that and uh, just make sure that a legend like that is kept intact and you continue to pass it on. I think that's the main thing. That's why this documentary is as popular as it has been so far because um, it is going to be something that I don't think we'll ever see again. Moving now into... Some more current events with the NHL 
in the NBA. One of the main problems that happened with both of these leagues because they do recruit the European continent is that when the pandemic originally hit and um, people, it, it was still, it was a part of the season where um, getting ready for the playoffs, but they would still have scouts uh, in Europe trying to find different players to see if they could, to see how they play in, in live action games and see if they would be able to transfer their game from the European League over to the NHL. Once the pandemic hit and the travel ban was instilled, these people were forced to stay in Europe. And then um, Scott Darling, Eric Fur, those are two of the European players that were over there trying to claw their way back to being able to to get in front of NHL eyes again. And they they still had their families living in the U.S. Uh, they were the ones that were stranded overseas and then had to wait for um, quarantine themselves and then wait for the ability to um, come back into the country. See if I can find any sort of... word as to whether or not they're still planning on bringing back and just having the playoffs or if this is going to be <laughs> no word on whether or not they're going to come back yet for the NHL as for the NBA Hopefully they have some sort of news. Doesn't look like it. It looks like they're still all just kind of waiting for everything to happen again. I don't know what I would rather have if I would rather them just try and come back and have the playoffs for the NHL and the NBA, but there's still a lot of talk also about the MLB players and whether or not they're going to be able to do any kind of a season. Um, somebody suggested that they could build a biodome and then just have the players live and play in the biodome. That way that we can still get as many baseball games as possible and nobody would have the risk of being able to transfer the virus from team to team. No, no fans, obviously, in attendance. So that would be something interesting. There's also now... Um, their talk of having because uh, half of the league goes to Florida, half of the league goes to Arizona and the Grapefruit League is in Florida, the Cactus League is in Arizona, so you have the Cactus League play each other, the winner of that round robin tournament or the, the season leader would then have to travel to a neutral site game against the winner of the Grapefruit League and then that would be a one year thing and then everybody would be expecting to come back and compete as normal and that could be something that I think would work out fairly well. The main problem that a lot of the sports are going to be facing is the travel to the different places and then possibly taking the disease with you wherever you go and not being able to um, know that you're spreading it before it's too late. I'm really hoping that, obviously... Like I said, the travel or the stay-at-home order for Colorado, I think, has been lifted, and then 
some things are starting to open up again. There's different approaches for every state. Um, I know Georgia was one of those states that closed everything down late, and then they're just ready to open everything back up. Um, Hopefully the people there are still being conscious about what's going on. I would say that we're probably going to need to go about a month of this limited opening and then see what happens with the virus and see if we get a vaccine for it in enough time and then just slowly keep reopening and reopening. Um, I do know that there are comedians who have shows scheduled in May in different places. The one that I know of is Spokane. So Spokane is trying to open up. They were the ones that had the virus first and then got it ta- got it under control faster than everybody else since they had it first. Um, I'm going to make sure that I keep my, my eyes and ears open so that if I do find something about a plan that they have coming up or um, if we're able to figure something out, if they come up with a solution and then we're going to have be able to have sports at some point again uh, with the playoffs and, and hockey and basketball and then baseball coming back for a limited season so that we can get ready for football to come back because I think that's the main thing that a lot of people in the sports world at least are worried about because if these networks don't get the TV money that they expect from football, if fans don't get to see football played this year, that's going to cause a lot of problems in a lot of different places because uh, I'm a sports fanatic, but my it's not... I treat it as a religion, but it's not treated as a religion for the people who are actually in power where I'm at. There are people in Alabama and Louisiana and Florida and Texas that if there is no football season, there is going to be longstanding riots and we're going to have to figure out a way to make sure that none of those states secede. We might have the entire SEC conference secede from the union if it's made of a public Uh, announcement that there would be no football season so I think that's what they're trying to do is make sure that they can mitigate as much risk as possible and hopefully they'll be able to play the games at some point so like I said I'll keep my eyes and ears open be sure to follow the center of attention twitter because if I I find something um, and it's not on a day that I'm going to be recording an episode I'll be sure to tweet it out through that account so if you want to keep up to date on some of the sports topics that I, I find something on and then try and get out to the public, you'll, be, you'll want to follow the Center of Attention Twitter page. I also make a funny joke or two on there from time to time, and I post behind-the-scenes videos, and, and uh, I'll be posting a lot more on that account. So you'll, be, you'll definitely want to um, follow that Twitter page. So... You can stay up to date with the show and and whatever we're going to cover on it. And now, since I went a little bit longer than I wanted to last week with the draft stuff, we'll start it a little bit early. We'll recap. What I'm going to do is recap the first round picks. If you listen to the bonus episodes, you know the first round picks and how close I was on a lot of the uh, mock draft stuff that we did on last Monday's episode, um, first overall pick, and this is why if you follow my personal Twitter, at Jimmy Pilato, I tweeted out for my family members to please don't text me the results of the draft when they get them because I was watching on the ESPN app, and 
Bengals are on the clock. It says that the pick is in on my screen. Roger Goodell's about to say it, and I get three or four text messages. Congratulations, congratulations, congratulations. Joe Burrow, you got Joe Burrow. You guys did. You did it. You drafted who you guys said you wanted to. So the ESPN app, I figured out at that point, was on a delay. So I wanted to ask if um, my family could refrain from texting me the people who have been drafted until I say that I've seen it. But in the first round, the Bengals selected Joe Burrow. thought that was the right move. I said that I wanted to get him in there, and it's come out now that he's been studying the Bengals' playbook for the last two weeks so that he could be ready to challenge for a starting spot. I think that is exactly the reason why everybody was so sure that he was going to go number one uh, because he has that kind of a mentality. He knows that he's not the most naturally talented player, so he tries to set himself apart by his film study, and I think that was evident from last season because as soon as he got a little bit of experience in the SEC, his junior year, he's able to come back his senior year, and we all saw what he did. The greatest, I think the greatest single season in college football beat seven of the top 15 teams at the end of the regular season, including a Clemson team that hadn't lost in two years, beat Alabama, who they hadn't beaten in, I think, six or seven years, and then beating Georgia, who two years ago was in the national championship, also with a quarterback prospect in this draft. So that was the best pick that I can remember, in, especially in the first round for the Bengals in a long time. Uh, Chase Young obviously went number two. I thought that Chase Young and Isaiah Simmons were equal talent-wise. I put Isaiah Simmons as a little bit better than Chase Young because of his versatility. I think that if you can get a guy who can rush the passer, cover receivers, cover tight ends in, in the box, and play linebacker and safety, and shut down the middle of the field like Isaiah Simmons, I would put him a little bit higher, but Chase Young, obviously, is going to work pretty well in that defense. They already got Montez Sweat from last year. Um, and there's a lot of people asking and saying, why would they draft Chase Young when they already have Montez Sweat? Isn't that just going to cause a rift between everybody? And uh, I harpen back to the Giants team's last decade that won Super Bowls. Not last decade. I guess it, it would be two decades ago now. In 2007 and 2011, and they had Justin Tuck, O.C. Yumanura, Jason Pierre-Paul, Michael Strahan, all in the same defensive line. And then you look last year, and you see Nick Bosa, Solomon Thomas, Arik Armstead, DeForest Buckner for San Francisco. See what happened with them when the two years before that, they'd been picking in the top five of both of those drafts. And now you have a guy like Montez Sweat. You have Ryan Kerrigan, who's been the leader on that defense for a long time, can still rush the passer. And then you add Chase Young. Teams are either going to have to decide that they're going to see if they have somebody who can block Chase Young one-on-one and see and slide the protection to the other guys, or they're going to slide the protection to Chase Young, and then Ryan Kerrigan and Montez Sweat are going to see a lot more one-on-ones. And as a defender, especially as a pass rusher, all you want to try and do is get to one-on-ones. That is a good setup for that defense. Uh, I think Washington had also a, a very good pick. And then Detroit... I kept saying that they are going to pair Jeff Okuda with Darius Slay. This is actually a pick to um, make up for the loss of Darius Slay. They lost him in uh, either a trade or free agency last season. Jeff Okuda considered to be the best pure defensive back in the draft. And um, at that point, 
with a guy like my, Matt Patricia, who's a defensive-minded person, and their defense really wasn't anything. They they weren't good. They weren't bad. I can't remember where I said they were in efficiency last week, but I know that they weren't towards the top. This is going to be this could be a guy that's going to be a leader in the secondary for a long time to come. And we've seen what can happen if you take away half of the field. Darrell Rivas took a lot of teams that probably didn't have the talent to be in the playoffs to the playoffs. And I'm speaking on those Jets teams. He was able to get Mark Sanchez to the playoffs. So I think Jeff Okuda is a good pick for them. Matt Patricia will know how to use him and implement him into his defensive scheme. I just said that they needed to pick up some offensive weapons as well in that draft and maybe see about drafting Stafford's replacement later on if he can and see if they can get a guy to learn underneath him. So that was a good pick. The Giants at four took Andrew Thomas from Georgia. A lot of people were saying that he was probably the second best tackle. Um, and there was a lot of teams that kind of did the same thing where they were drafting what wasn't considered the best player at that position, but a, a player that they must have met with and jived with. And I think that if you, if you find two people that on in your eyes and the way that you grade film equal in that regard, you take the guy who you think can be the better leader. My guess is that the Giants met with Andrew Thomas and they know that they need to pick up protection for their young quarterback that showed flashes of promise when promise last year when nobody really expected it to happen. And they wanted the guy personality-wise that fit best with him. I believe that they're probably going to put him... Um, I can't remember the name of their guard that they drafted uh, a couple years ago. But I, I, he's going to go in on the right side now. So he'll be opposite Solder. And then they're starting to kind of fill out that offensive line. And that'll help not only... Um, Daniel Jones, but he'll, it'll also help Saquon Barkley because I'm sure that watching his film, he's a run he's a run blocker, pure talent run blocker right now, and then moving forward, they're just going to be able to try and develop him into a passer, but they have the best running back, most dynamic running back, I think, in the league in Saquon Barkley, so that's also going to help him moving forward. The Dolphins at five pick Tua. I know a couple of my family members didn't like this pick. My brother, Dom, who you guys have heard both on sports episodes and just regular episodes, thought that with the injury history, it was a bad pick for the Dolphins. My thing was is that I think the Dolphins are still reeling from the fact that they could have had Drew Brees and decided that he couldn't be their quarterback because their medical staff didn't clear his shoulder after beginning his labrum repaired. And I don't think they wanted to miss out on that. They... The ESPN or the broadcast team, because uh, they did joint broadcast with ESPN and NFL Network, said that he had met with a hip specialist, I believe the same doctor who did the hip surgery on uh, Bo Jackson, and said that he uh, has never seen the kind of recovery that Tua's hip shows after having that surgery. The ankles and the broken nose and the hip dislocation is does give you pause, but he does have a lot of talent. And he has a better arm, better arm than people remember him having. Um, he can throw, throw the slants as hard as he needs to to get completions in the NFL. He has good touch on the deep passes. Needs to sharpen up his decision making, but he's also not going to Miami to start right away. He has Ryan Fitzpatrick in front of him, a guy who's been around the league basically to most of the teams in the league so far, and he'll be able to try and teach a young quarterback, how to be a professional, and, and that takes some of the responsibility off of him 
right away so that he can make sure that he gets as healthy as possible before he starts hitting the field. I think that's a good pick for Miami. Um, and I like Tua better than Herbert, and Herbert's who went sixth overall to the Chargers. They needed somebody to be kind of the face of their franchise now that they're in Los Angeles and they're going to be in the new stadium. Because like I said last week, uh, San Diego's pissed off that they lost the Chargers and nobody really cared about them in Los Angeles for the past couple seasons. StubHub Center gets more of a crowd for the soccer matches that they host there than the um, Charger games that they had there. So Herbert at six, he'll sit probably behind Tyrod Taylor. Tyrod Taylor has a bad history of getting beat out by the quarterbacks drafted in the first round underneath him. Um, Cleveland was a little bit not his fault because he did get a concussion and Baker came in and just played better than anybody expected him to right away. Uh, So we'll see what happens with Herbert there and how Tyrod Taylor and him work something out. If you want to look just for size and strength and arm talent and all that kind of stuff, Herbert is the best quarterback out of anybody. Uh, 6'5", or actually 6'6", 240 pounds, can move, and then he's got a huge arm. I just didn't like how how I saw his personality go in his bigger games. All the games that he really needed to win to give the Pac-12 respect, give Oregon respect nationally, he kind of just choked on. Um, And after watching him play the second half in Arizona State where the Sun Devils were already jumping all over the Ducks because they weren't ready to play, and then he throws two interceptions on balls that shouldn't have been thrown, it just wasn't a good look for him. So I didn't trust him as much as I trusted the other quarterbacks in this draft. I would not have picked him in the first round. And hopefully they're going to have somebody to try and iron that stuff out, and maybe it was just a college thing. But at this point, I think that he's he's the most liable quarterback to be a bust of any so far. Carolina. I think Carolina is who I assigned worst pick to. Um, and they, they held on to it for a long time. Because like I said, Isaiah Simmons, to me, top player in the draft, just talent-wise, the way that he's able to going to be able to transition to the pro game because his position doesn't have as many nuances as some of the other ones and when in doubt he's just going to have to go find the football that's going to be his thing Uh, sitting right there for Carolina Carolina needs to fill the hole of Keekly Simmons and Keekly don't necessarily play the same type of linebacker Um, Simmons is more of a 3-4 player but you pick players and then you adjust them to the scheme that you have you don't pick a player that just because he didn't play the scheme that you do in the NFL, he didn't play that scheme in college, doesn't mean that he can't learn. And a guy like Simmons at Clemson, Dabo Sweeney said that he's a beautiful football player. He's a maestro. He can pick things up. You tell him something once, he remembers it. That's him. And they decide to go with Derek Brown, who is honestly the best interior pass rusher in this whole entire draft. But I don't know how you pass on a guy who can play any different position on the field and pick a guy who can really only do one thing. And you can scheme up a interior pass rusher a lot better than you can an exterior pass rusher or a guy that can rush the passer, cover a receiver, play inside the box as a linebacker. We saw that two years ago in the Super Bowl. I, I said it. A lot of other people said it. When I was talking to Coach McFadden because him and I were texting during the draft, um, he said it as well. Aaron Donald and Dominican Sue. And Warren and Warren Sapp beg to differ. Yeah, they do beg to differ. Guess what? Only one of them has won a championship. 
and guys like Isaiah Simmons who can play all, all over the field. Um, Khalil Mack, multiple-time All-Pro, he makes his defense as be- as best as it can, better than better than anybody else has. All-decade team. Von Miller, Super Bowl 50 MVP, Super Bowl champion. He can rush the passer. He dropped into coverage. That's how the Broncos got into the Super Bowl that season because he dropped out off the line on a blitz and intercepted Tom Brady. He has a championship. Lawrence Taylor has two championships, was the most dominant player in football for the entire decade of the 80s, was an all-decade team member as well. He wasn't. He didn't play three quarters of a game. I think he came in and played seven seven minutes of a game, I think against the Eagles or somebody. The Giants were down and down big, not looking good, not being able to do anything. Lawrence Taylor goes in and stops stuffs somebody on the goal line, intercepts a pass, takes it back to the house, and then causes a safety that is seven or yeah, the 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 seven points and the nine and the two points on the safety, those nine points were the difference between the Giants winning and losing the game. These guys can win games. Interior pass rushers don't win games unless they have solid levels behind them. And I don't see them having a solid level behind them. They don't have a, a solid linebacker. They don't have a solid defensive back. They don't have those kinds of pieces to make Derek Brown as dangerous as people think that he can be. I'm not saying that he's a bad player, and I'm not saying he's going to be successful. I think overall, the guy who makes your team better is the guy you should draft in the top 10 of the NFL draft because up until maybe about pick 12, then you start to see players be on very even playing fields. And I can tell you right now, Isaiah Simmons, no matter who you talk to, is much higher on the totem pole than somebody like a Derek Brown. It'd be sacrilegious for me to say or something because I know that I'm a, a big lineman at heart and I put more stock into the, the big uglies than a lot of other people do. But that's just the... I mean, there's there's not a good comparison because it's never happened before I just don't Matt Rule I get I I said that I love him I think that he's going to do great in Carolina bad first pick for him and uh, that new ownership is going to need to rethink their their general managers because I'll I'll get to it later but uh, general managers and VPs of player personnel can really screw up a team's draft and, and make what looked promising in the offseason, they, they can turn it just like that into the biggest mistake of, of their lives. After that, at number eight, Arizona selected Isaiah Simmons. Arizona not only gets the the nod for picking up, I think, the best player in the draft, pairing him with a guy who two years ago led the league in sacks with Chandler Jones. Um, you got Patrick Peterson there. Kyler Murray is getting a lot better. Did a lot better in his first year than I think a lot of people expected. Five-win team last year for Arizona. That that was a playoff victory for them, pretty much, with what they had been gone through, going through since Bruce Arians and Carson Palmer are no longer there. Since 2015, when they lost in the NFC Championship game, they've been trying to reget, rekindle some sort of an attitude. And there's no bigger attitude than Cliff Kingsbury sitting in his. $40 million Arizona home with the sun outside. Looks like he can walk basically outside of his back door and play a, a quick nine at whatever golf course he lives on. 
also in the Gucci loafers, the $1,000 Armani suit pants, and the uh, pure silk or pure cotton or whatever you want to, which, whichever one is the most expensive type of dress shirt that you can, and he's got only four of the buttons done. So he's he, he not only wanted you to know that he's richer than you and that he's an NFL coach and that he's going to be, uh, no matter if he's successful or not, he's going to have more money than you. He also needed to make sure that they made the best pick in the draft. And whoever picked up Isaiah Simmons with how far he was going to fall because of Chase Young, because of Jeff Okuda, because of Tua Tagovailoa and Justin Herbert getting bumped up due to their status as quarterbacks, whoever picked up Isaiah Simmons was going to win the first round. And uh, other than maybe Miami, who had three first-round picks, which never happens before, and I don't, there's not really a way to screw that up. Um, I don't think that there was uh, another team that could have had a better draft in the first round. Jacksonville at nine took C.J. Henderson, cornerback. He's pretty good. They needed somebody to replace both A.J. Bouye and Jalen Ramsey that they got rid of last season. Um, they need a lot more than just help from this year's draft. It's going to take them a while now to get back up. Uh, definitely need to get some receivers for Minshew to throw to, but they went – defense in both of their first round picks just because i found it easily now at 20 in their pick that they got from los angeles the los angeles rams from for the jalen ramsey they picked kaylevon chasson edge rusher from lsu fell down a lot of people's draft boards because they were he was injured last season but this was the guy that when he came back for the lsu defense transformed that tiger's defense from being a, a good defense to being a transcendent defense and one that can play with the best offensive performance of any other college football season. So they got the number one one-on-one -on -one pass rusher, according to Booger McFarlane. Take that for what it's worth, however you uh, interpret that, because I know a lot of people either like him or don't like him, but he says that they got the best one-on-one -on -one pass rusher in the entire draft, and then they also got... A really good cornerback and he's going to be able to develop and you're getting guys I don't know where CJ Henderson is from but he already lives in Florida and Jacksonville is really close to Gainesville I think I guess in relation to how big Florida is number 10 Cleveland beefs up their offensive line they picked up what a lot of people said was the best offensive tackle in the entire draft Jedrick Willis and I will say that he is really good I'm not saying that he's – I don't know if he's the best one because if you look at a guy like Mekhi Becton who went 11 right after him, if you have – I saw the same type of athleticism in both of them. Jedrick Willis obviously is faster because he's lighter. Mekhi Becton's the 367-pound man that ran a 5-1-140 and could possibly chase down Jake Fromm who is a quarterback and, uh, and he outweighs by 100 pounds plus. It's tough to say that Jedrick Willis is the best one in that regard because I think that Mekhi Becton has the better frame to be able to be taught good technique. Jedrick Willis doesn't really need to be taught any kind of technique. And hopefully he'll be good um, because he was the guy that sat behind a guy like Jonah Williams, who is on my team, last year's first-round pick, who blew his labrum and didn't get to play all season. If he turns out to be really good then ho that hopefully that means Jonah Williams is going to be really good because if Jonah Williams can beat out 
Jedrick Willis for the starting spot at Alabama. There's no reason why he shouldn't be a better player in the NFL. The Jets taking Mekhi Becton. Uh, I like to joke with my brother just because I, I know he's a Jets fan. Dom's a huge Jets fan. And I said wh- whether or not he's a good blocker, he's big enough that it's going to take somebody two and a half days just to run around him if he doesn't put his hands on him. And I'm sure that most of the time he's going to get his hands on somebody. Um, six foot seven and three eighths and 367 pounds. And that's down weight. That, uh, that's him losing weight to get to 367. That was, uh, I think that was a good pick for the Jets. They need offensive line help. He'll be able to open up a lot of running lanes for Le'Veon Bell. And Le'Veon Bell is the type of running back that likes to hide behind his offensive lineman. No better offensive lineman to hide behind than Mekhi Becton. Uh, absolutely good good pick for the Jets. Adam Gase, um, I think he's had really good drafts his two years that he's been the head coach in New York. Quinny Williams showed that he, he can be a, pr- a predominant pass rusher in, on the interior of the defensive line in this league. And now that they're they're beefing up the other side of the ball, and I think that's the most important positions that you want to have uh, a lot of talent in if you want to consistently compete for playoff spots. And now that that division has been left open by New England not having the greatest quarterback of all time anymore, I think that's a good pick for them. Las Vegas made a pick that Al Davis could have made from the grave. I don't know whether or not he did this did make this pick or not. Um, Henry Ruggs, who I know I've talked about because he was connected with the Broncos, that if he was there, they were going to take him because he ran so fast, 4 um, and he was a really dynamic playmaker, had a lot of touchdowns, had a lot of uh, touches at Alabama. Henry Ruggs, it, it, the, if you know anything about the Raiders draft history, they picked track stars. They picked the guys that test the best at the Combine because Al Davis thought that if you had the best athletes, no matter if they were good football players or not, that's all you needed. And uh, this is a, a pick that would have gone right well with him. He would have also picked the quarterback who could just throw it the farthest and uh, see if Henry he can outthrow Henry Ruggs on the outside. And he did do that before he died with Jamarcus Russell. I know everybody remembers Jamarcus Russell, how he ate himself out of the league because the Raiders don't do any other evaluations other than ones that are found on a stopwatch. So it's, it's a typical Raiders pick. They could have done a lot better. They, they had a much better first round last, last year than they did this past year. Next at 13, Tampa Bay traded with, um, in, with San Francisco. They would have had this pick from Indianapolis already, or th- this was a pick that Indianapolis had, uh, San Francisco had, wow, from Indianapolis, and then they traded with Tampa Bay, just one spot forward. They pick up Tristan Wirfs. So other than the Raiders, they had there was a little bit of a run on offensive linemen from about 10 to 13, and then you had a defensive lineman at 14. Um with Javon Kinlaw to San Francisco. This is a good pick for Ta- for Tampa. I, Tristan Wurst was my favorite offensive lineman in the entire draft. I love the Iowa nastiness that he plays with. He is strong. He's the one that, if, you, if you've been on social media, you've probably seen the video of him going around um, power cleaning 405 for four rep or 455 for four reps. And uh, there's also the video of him being a 340-pound man, being able to jump out of the four-foot end of a pool. And everybody knows how impressive that is if you're familiar with that test of athleticism and explosive, explosive muscle. 
Um, Tristan Wirfs is going to be a good player for a long time, and they needed to pick up some protection for Brady just because they know that Brady is uh, he's gun-shy if he starts getting rattled. Uh, the Broncos were able to beat him in the AFC Championship because they physically assaulted him basically every play, and now they have a guy who's going to be able to try and help protect him and hopefully develop into a guy that's going to be the anchor on their offensive line for a long time. San Francisco with Javon Kinlaw. It swerved me a little bit just because they've been picking defensive linemen in first round for the past five years, but that was always in the top five. I thought now that they were outside of that, they would do something different. But they decided to continue to stick with what's working, and they did lose one of their pass rushers from last season. I believe it was either Arik Armstead or DeForest Buckner, but now they have a guy who's able to slide in there. Um, he, he's an explosive guy, and he's a, he's listed as a D lineman, not a D tackle or a DN because he plays both. Um He's not necessarily big enough, I think, to play on the inside in the NFL. But then Geno Atkins has been the anchor of the defensive line of my team for 10-plus years and has been really good at it. Um, And I think at some point will be recognized as possibly a Hall of Famer depending on how much success the Bengals can have in the twilight of Geno Atkins' career. And I think Javon Kinlaw could possibly be somebody like that South Carolina defensive lineman. I don't know if you remember this guy, but Jadavian Clowney. Also still a really highly touted pass rusher. So those guys don't necessarily lose much. Um, If he stays healthy, he could be pretty dangerous. And that San Francisco defense from last season is is a place where I would love to go if I was a rookie because they're going to tell you what you're going to do, and that's exactly what you're going to be doing. Moving on to 15, and this is one of those picks that I did not agree with at all. Um, I thought at this point there's nobody really left. And the, you, you can't really take an offensive lineman anymore. I think the three offensive linemen that could have been taken in the top 20 of this year's draft were taken already. And I wanted Elway to realize his mistake that he's had at left tackle for the past three years and Garrett Bowles and trade back. I thought if he traded back a little bit, there's so much depth and talent for receivers and skill positions in this draft. At the end of, at the, end of the first round, you still had DeAndre Swift, on the board, you still had T. Higgins on the board, and you still had, uh, I can't remember, there was another marquee running back that was still left on the board. You didn't have to pick up a skill position guy at 15. Trick somebody else into doing it. But John Elway has continually made himself the butt of every single joke that you can be in, in Denver with the way that he drafts and the way that he's done his business so far. This was a bad pick for the Broncos. I know I have family that love John Elway as a player, but don't think that he's done very well as an executive, especially in the draft. He's He's got really good at the free agent stuff, and he brings in the top free agents. He's the guy that brought us Peyton Manning, and without him, we probably don't get Peyton Manning, and we probably don't have Super Bowl 50. Now, I'm saying we as the collective of people who live in Denver. Now, I'm not necessarily a Broncos fan, but I still like to see them do good because they're the option that I have to go watch NFL football in person if I want to. And this is just a, another case where his ego was too big, his ego was bigger than his two front teeth that I know people have made fun of him for. There's a reason why the Denver donkeys exist, and it's not because the Bronco on the helmet used to look like a donkey. It's because when John Elway became the quarterback of the Broncos, he looked like a donkey with how big his front teeth were. And now he's proven that he's just as much of an ass that, that he was when he was the donkey quarterback in this in this still drafting process to where he's not willing 
to plug the hole that he created by drafting the guy that nobody said was ready to play in the NFL. Garrett Bowles was not ready to play in the NFL. He played three seasons of football, period, after he had got out of a halfway house for troubled youth. That's not the guy that you line up at left tackle and be super confident that he's going to be able to protect anybody. He's not, and he's proven that. He doesn't know how to play the game, and he had the opportunity to maybe plug that hole, draft, trade down, pick up some more capital, and he decided not to take it, and I think that's going to be the downfall of the Broncos for this upcoming season. I know I've had some the, some bad opinions on the Broncos before, and they've proven me wrong. I didn't think that they'd make it to the Super Bowl in 2015. I didn't think their offense was good enough to do that. And that was before I was even doing anything with sports broadcasting or sports podcasting or anything like that. Jerry Judy for the Broncos at number 15 will be the reason that they won't be able to compete for the AFC West again. I said this to a whole bunch of different people um, on Thursday night, is that the, the AFC West is slowly transitioning towards becoming the new AFC East, where you have one team who has the best player at a, a, the most important position at quarterback in Patrick Mahomes, and everybody is just trying to build up the same kind of offense so that they can compete with him offensively. Got to be able to score with him. Got to be able to score with him. Got to be able to score with him. Well, why do that when you don't have somebody who's that good at the same position as him? Drew Locke is not Patrick Mahomes. He'll never be Patrick Mahomes. He has the ability to be successful. If he has the right team around him, he can lead you to a championship. But he's not Patrick Mahomes. He's not doing it by himself. And having a guy like Jerry Judy, cool. Now you have three passing options. You you picked up a fourth now in the draft because you had three going in. You had Melvin Gordon who can catch the ball out of the backfield. Phillip Lindsay still doesn't know how to do that. You have Cortland Sutton who's turned into a number one receiver, yet you try to transfer transition him to the number one receiver too early so he was picking up triple and double teams all the time people are getting pissed off at him so now he feels the pressure to produce like you guys say that he should and then you had Noah Fant who after a rough first half of the season started to get back into it but he's also a tight end and still doesn't know how to block so you still have to work on him and now you had another guy like that where you're gonna have to develop him College receivers don't know how to play in the NFL because they haven't had to run all the different route tree options that they have against all the different coverage options that they're going to see that they have not seen yet because nobody in college football plays anything other than zone because it's the easiest play or easiest scheme to learn and implement and that's the only one where you can keep up with a spread offense going down the field to no huddle with cards on the sidelines jerry judy will not be a productive member of this offense until maybe year two more likely year three and that productive member of the offense is going to be maybe 750 extra receiving yards and who knows two or three touchdowns when you could have traded back picked up a offensive lineman that could maybe fill a hole for you you can get rid of a former 20th overall pick i'm not going to name names again because i bashed him enough on this podcast but garrett holds you can get rid of him, plug that hole. Hey, don't look over there. Who, who, who remembers Garrett Bowles? We traded back and we picked up an even better offensive lineman who we know can play, who knows how to play the position that we've drafted him and we're going to pay him millions and millions of dollars to play. We've tried everything else around him. We brought in a Hall of Fame coach that everybody said could turn around any offensive lineman, can't turn, off, can't turn around Garrett Bowles. His holding numbers went down because referees were physically sick and tired of throwing flags on him. This was the one year, this this was the one chance that the Broncos had of making up for their past mistakes, and they just make another one. 
So they're they're completely out of the picture at this point. Fourth best team in the AFC West. I don't even care. Yeah, they beat the Raiders twice. That was not their fault. That was that was not because the Broncos were that much better. It was because they just knew how to not lose games just a little bit better than the Raiders. At 16, Atlanta picked AJ Terrell from Clemson. Uh, I, I'm not gonna lie. Outside of the first few defensive backs i don't really know too much about them i know if you're going to pick a guy from clemson brent venables uh knows how to coach guys really well and and he coached so so much at the professional level he can come back and and you're going to get a much more pro ready defensive back coming from clemson than you would maybe coming from a a school in the pac-12 or some some other school where he's not going to have the type of coaching that he has had down there in south carolina 17, Dallas picks C.D. Lamb. It's a good enough pick for him. I think that that makes, takes a little bit more pressure off of Amari Cooper. Cooper's still going to be your number one. You have Michael Gallup who can be in the slot. C.D. Lamb could also come in and be a slot receiver. You're going to have to pick which one is going to be your, your X because you have a Z and Amari Cooper. You need an X, and then you need to pick which one is going to be your slot guy. Um, and I at, at this point, I would put C.D. Lamb in the slot because he's a little bit more explosive. And uh, he he can run with the ball a little bit better than Michael Gallup. So if you're going to try and get somebody the ball in space and then make him make a play, C.D. Lamb's that kind of guy to do it. So I think that's what Dallas is going to do with him. Um, and then also Jerry Jones is the one who won best best draft war room because it was on his $90 million yacht. And his room was twice the size of my dorm room, probably maybe a couple stories higher as well. Um, so that was a good pick for Dallas. I thought that they did. No, nothing great, but they're also not hurting themselves in this first round. Miami, with their pick from Pittsburgh, after that Minka Fitzpatrick trade, Pittsburgh got rid of all of their first-round picks for this season. They were one of the teams that didn't have a single first-round pick. And and they say that they're, they're fine with it because Minka Fitzpatrick was a producer, but I feel like they could have benefited from maybe getting in to the first round and, and being able to dictate who was going to be there instead of having to do the pickings off of the carcass in the second round and on. Um, but at that pick, I thought Miami needed to pick up an offensive lineman at, at some point. I thought it would be more. They had 22, but then they traded again with um, Green Bay. So then they ended up picking 30th, and then they finished out picking a cornerback, Noah Igbin Hay. Ganey, I'll figure out how to say it at some point from Auburn. Uh, everybody talked about that he he's as talented as you need to be to play in that that league. And Miami wasn't as bad as people think. So they're they're bolstering up their defensive backfield a little bit. They got Austin Jackson at 18, the offensive lineman from USC. I always say if you're going to pick an offensive lineman, pick from the Big Ten or the SEC, you're not going to find the same caliber of offensive lineman that you would in those other conferences in the Pac-12. But Austin Jackson, his film shows that he can be physical, even though his offense that he was running out there at USC wasn't necessarily the most physical offense that they could have ran. But I think that that'll be fine for them anyways. If I was going to pick a team that won the first round, it's going to be between Minnesota and Miami. Um, also, I, I would throw in Arizona there because of the Isaiah, Isaiah Simmons pick. And that should show you how much I think Isaiah Simmons is ready to compete at the next level because he is just as good 
as the three first-round picks Miami made. I'm going to finish out the first round quickly now since I had already given you guys my reactions on a lot of them if you listen to the bonus episode. Um, If not, go back and listen to that one if you want more in-depth breakdowns of these. But Vegas at 19, if they're picked from Chicago in the Khalil Mack trade, they picked Damon Arnett from Ohio State. Ohio State's become defensive back university. I think they have eight now that have been picked in the first round. Jacksonville and their pick from the Rams in the Ramsey trade picked up K. Levon Chasson. I talked about him already um, when we were talking about Jacksonville's first pick in the first round. Philadelphia picked Jalen Rager, and there was still a lot of other really good receivers left on the board. That's why it was a little bit surprising to me, but I think that was a, a case of these two guys are probably very similar, and we're going to go with a guy who has our personality better and fits in better with our locker room. So that's, I think, why they picked Jalen Rager instead of another one of those marquee receivers. Then Minnesota at 22. After they traded with Buffalo for Stephon Diggs, picked up Stephon Diggs' replacement, and I actually think that they got an upgrade. Justin Jefferson shows a lot more upside Excuse me. than Stephon Diggs. He's probably going to come in and do the same amount of production that Diggs would have his first season, and after that, he's going to be up, up there in the elite category of receivers. That was a huge steal. Minnesota is also up there as to who won the first round. The Chargers, with their pick from New England, they traded. New England traded out of the first round with the Chargers, and they got back in. They picked the Kenneth Murray from Oklahoma. Um, and I know uh, there's a lot of trash about there, about the defense played in the Big 12. But if you watch Kenneth Murray play, you know that he defies all of those other, you know, maybe he's soft, and the, they don't play defense, any of that. He's fast enough that he can play sideline to sideline from inside linebacker. He's a true traditional 4-3 linebacker. Um, and the Chargers, I can't remember who their linebacker coach is, but they were talking about how many guys that he's helped turn around. And Kenneth Murray has as much raw talent as all of their Hall of Fame linebackers um, that that guy is coached. So that was a good pickup from them. I don't think that it was bad for them to retrade in to the first round with New England. And then at 24, New Orleans picks Cesar Ruiz, center from Michigan. I really fell in love with that guy because when they were asking him why he should be a NFL offensive lineman and why a team should take a chance on him, all he said was, look at my tape and look how nasty I play. And um, when you have that kind of stones as a rookie offensive lineman or a guy who hasn't even been drafted yet, I, I have some pretty good faith in you. I've watched more of his film, Michigan, obviously, in the Big Ten, and I think that their offensive line is up to snuff in that con- con- in that conference. Wow. Um, I'm running out of words for for the day. I might hit my word limit in this quarantine because I I hung out with Kyle, but that was only for a couple hours. Other than that, I haven't really been talking all that much. But I think Cesar Ruiz was a good pickup for them. San Francisco at 25, traded with Minnesota, and they picked up Brandon Ayuk from Arizona State, Um, another receiver that Kyle Shanahan can incorporate into his house of shifts and motions and jet sweeps and all that kind of stuff. I think that's a good pickup for them as they had lost Emmanuel Sanders, so they needed to find a replacement. Green Bay was the surprise pick at 26 from Houston via Miami. It was supposed to be Miami's pick, and they traded with Green Bay again. They pick up Jordan Love from Utah State around the same time that they originally drafted Aaron Rodgers, and people were asking why they did this because all it's going to do is piss off Aaron Rodgers, and I said, great. Because if you watch Aaron Rodgers last season in the biggest moments, 
in the, in the times where you think that a competitor is going to take the team and elevate them to the level that they should be at. He didn't do that. He crumbled. I think he's lazy. He knows that nobody is there to challenge him. And raw talent-wise, I know I say that a lot, and it means a lot of different things. There's a lot of gray area with that. But of all the people, of all the quarterbacks in this year's draft that aren't finished project projects, Jordan Love was the one who seemed to show the most upside, can really throw Throws a really good ball. If he can learn from Aaron Rodgers, I know Aaron Rodgers is not going to play nice with him, but also if Aaron Rodgers doesn't play nice with him and then goes out there and and is showing the same kind of stuff, I would be quick, if I was Matt LaFleur, to pull him and put in Jordan Love because you need to establish with Aaron Rodgers that he's going to have to start playing like he wants to be there instead of relaxed and, oh, I'm this I'm, I'm the greatest quarterback talent-wise that's ever played the game. Yeah, well, you've only won one championship, so get the hell off my field, and we're going to send in this rookie because he actually wants to win. Um, so I think that was a good pickup for Green Bay. I really don't, ma- don't mind picking up somebody for competition for a guy who hasn't had it in a long time. That'll be good for Aaron Rodgers, hopefully, in the long run. Seattle at 27, picked Jordan Brooks from Texas Tech. Um didn't think that he would go before Patrick Queen. Patrick Queen went to pick after him from LSU to Baltimore. Isaiah Wilson from Georgia went to Tennessee. They're bolstering their offensive line. They know the strength of their team, and they have a solid left side of the line. Maybe Isaiah Wilson will come in and maybe solidify that right side of the line. It also gives them another offensive lineman because they like to run multiple, multiple offensive linemen sets that he can come in now and then clear another way, another path for Derrick Henry. Last year's leading rusher in the league, Miami at 30 from Green Bay. Pick Noah Igobanehi. I mentioned that already. 31, Minnesota from got their pick from San Francisco. They pick up Jeff Gladney from TCU, also a top five cornerback in this year's draft. And then Kansas City rounding out and making sure that they're still going to be the number one team in the AFC West. Picks up Clyde Edwards-Alaire. I think that he's the best running back in this entire draft. Um, with the way that he helped out and allowed to take some of the pressure off of Joe Burrow last season with LSU. And you could tell the difference when he was in the game and when he wasn't in the game. With as explosive as that LSU offense was, when he's not on the field, they're not as good as they are when he is. So I think that they're going to ele- that Andy Reid is going to elevate Edwards Alaire and Edwards Alaire is going to elevate Andy Reid, Kansas City. Even just if they if they only had that one pick and didn't have another pick in any of the other rounds, I think that they're still set up to go back to the Super Bowl. Round two, the big ones that I wanted to talk about. I'll focus mainly on Cincinnati because that's my team. They pick up T. Higgins in round two. I think this is a, a pick acknowledging that A.J. Green is getting older. He didn't, obviously didn't play last season because of an injury. And um, this is T. Higgins is one of the biggest play receivers in all of college football i thought they could have maybe waited a little bit more pick up a donovan peoples jones or michael Pittman, who went right after him to indianapolis but t higgins will be i think good with joe burrow he's coming from having a really good quarterback in trevor lawrence and now he's going to be there with um andy dalton joe burrow figure out who's going to start there and that could be a start of an offensive foundation for the Bengals moving forward depending on how they adjust their scheme with Joe Burrow, and depending on how Zach Taylor learns from his mistakes in his first year, Detroit picks up DeAndre Swift. 
A lot of people had him as their top-rated running back on the board. He didn't go till 35 to the Lions, and they just needed to pick up offensive weapons. They could have picked any skill position. They picked the best guy left at that skill position. They would have done well with that, so I think the Lions had a good draft at 35. Kansas City, not Kansas City, New England, picked up another small school guy. That's the type that Bill Belichick loves to coach. Um, So I think that they they know where he's going to go. They picked up Kyle Duggar, who's a safety from Lenore Ryan. I'm not even going to pretend to know where that is or what conference, what level, division that they play at. All I know is that if Bill Belichick likes him, they're going to bring him in, they're going to develop him, and then they're going to get out another Pro Bowl performer because that's what they did with McCourty Twins. That's what they did with Stephon Gilmore. So that's what they're going to do with him as well. Um, Jonathan Taylor went to Indianapolis. So now they have Marlon Mack and Jonathan Taylor to run behind that big offensive line. Lost some of his pieces from the season where they barely let Andrew Luck get sacked at all um, and and had a good season going until Jacoby Brissett got hurt. Jonathan Taylor now will be able to help that. He's a change of pace guy. Only, Only concern for me is that he has so many touches in college. Granted that he did have a lot of long runs and he didn't take as much punishment as guys before him like Monte Ball or a Melvin Gordon, but you're never too sure about how many more miles they have left on them. And it's shown the market has transitioned away from paying running backs a lot of money. Uh, but if you can get a guy like Jonathan Taylor who has the ability to be a generational type running back, I think you got to take him. And Indianapolis will know how to use him. Frank Reich loves to run with fullbacks and big offensive linemen. Quentin Nelson and Jonathan Taylor are going to become best friends. And then the rest of the league is on notice. Jacksonville picks up LaVisca Chenault Jr. from Colorado. Um, obviously, this would have been a guy that I I would have liked to see the Broncos pick up if they would have done the trade back in the first round. I think they would have had an opportunity to pick him up, but he ends up going to Jacksonville. Gardner Minshew now has a, a legit deep threat. Um, he can go, go up and catch 50-50 balls. If he could stay healthy, that'll be a good good move for them. They needed to pick up explosiveness on the offensive side of the ball. Um, Cleveland picked up Grant Delpit from LSU off of that championship defense. That'll be good for them. Cleveland really just has to stay out of their own way with coaching, and they should be just fine. They have the talent now that they should be able to compete for anybody, compete with anybody, but Freddie Kitchens last year didn't ever put the offense in a good enough situation to win and thus to put more pressure on the defense, so then it just all looked bad. But I think that they're talented enough. If their coaching can get out of the way, that'll be good for them. Antoine Winfield, if you listen to Gunnison Sports Talk Radio, you heard Jordan Carls actually talk about him because he's a Minnesota guy to where he's from. And he was watching the Gophers last year when they had that magical season, just barely missing out on the college football playoff, having lost to, um, uh, who did they lose? Oh, uh, Wisconsin at the end of the season so that they weren't competing in the Big Ten Championship. But uh, he's considered one of the sleeper defensive backs in this year's draft, and Tampa Bay got him in the second round at pick number 45. That's great value for him, and he should be able to come in and, and compete and elevate that defense out there in Tampa Bay. Tampa Bay slowly becoming a team that last year was 
500 when they had Jameis Winston throwing 30 touchdowns and 30 interceptions. Now they pick up Gronkowski, Brady. Um, first round they got Tristan Wirfs, and now they pick up Antoine Winfield Jr. from Minnesota. They're slowly, slowly starting to become Super Bowl favorites out of that division. If you're going to pick one Super Bowl favorite from each of the divisions, I think out of the NFC South, Tampa Bay is really scary. They quickly went from the basement to now being able to compete with anybody out there. Denver picks another receiver at 46. We were ta- I was talking to some of my family because they're the Broncos fans in my life. I have an aunt, Lisa, who hates John Elway because she he snubbed her for an autograph one time. Uh, I have another aunt, Michelle, who likes John Elway because he was a good player when he was there, but he seems to have lost his touch as an executive. He's out of touch with whatever anybody else thinks. He thinks he's smarter than anybody else in the room. I've already said my piece on the the donkey quarterback, and that's what he's going to be until he can prove to me that the guys that he picked are going to be good for him because they already have another receiver that they picked up in round three two years ago with Deshaun Hamilton from Penn State. And he he was the most accomplished receiver in Penn State history. And now they pick up K.J. Hamler, who I was talking about being able to pick up in the later rounds. But that was for a team who had a good, had a better pick in the first round than what the Broncos did. I don't think K.J. Hamler coupled with Jerry Judy, not Jerry Judy, um, yeah, Jerry Judy from the first round is, is a good first two rounds at all. And the first two rounds are where you find the most talent. After that, you're looking for the diamond in the rough. The Broncos don't even have that opportunity because they're still coming from behind and all the rest of their picks. I think that was that was bad for them. Pittsburgh picking up Chase Claypool. An interesting move just because the Steelers have a lot of really good receivers. Claypool is much more of a of a Switzer type, and, and Switzer's been there. Ryan Switzer's been there to return punts, be the slot guy. Um, honestly, I think they could have picked up a running back in this position because... Um, Oh, I can't and now I can't think of of the guy who plays running back for the Steelers. And I should know him because he James Conner, James Conner, and I know I should know him because he was able to overcome cancer and then come back his senior season in college still be one of the better running backs in the country at Pitt. Uh, they could have picked up some depth for him because he has a lot of injury troubles or they could have possibly picked up some quarterback help because Big Ben's not going to be around forever. And we've seen last year that they don't have the backups to be able to compete with them. Um, It's going to be Big Ben or they're going to need to figure out something else. But Devlin Duck Hodges is way better at making duck calls than he is at throwing touchdowns. And for whatever reason, uh, Mason Rudolph has not transitioned from college to the NFL very well. I thought that he had the best, a better opportunity than a lot of the other quarterbacks taken in his season, but he's proven that he, he's scared to make a mistake, and when you're scared to make a mistake, that's when you make the most amount of mistakes. Philly picking up Jalen Hurts was is interesting. Um, obviously, they have an athletic quarterback now, had some injury issues, and this is going to be bolstered by the fact that Hertz will be able to learn from Carson Wentz and also Josh McCown for now. Uh, McCown is the guy who came in for Carson Wentz in the playoffs after uh, um, Wentz got hurt playing against the Seahawks. I think that's good for them picking up a guy that can come in when Carson Wentz gets hurt 
and he'll have a similar playing style. Jalen Hurts is a winner. Jalen Hurts is the type of leader that I want on my team. The way he handled being beat out by Tua and being replaced at halftime of the national championship game to not transferring right away, sitting out that rest that season as the backup, winning the SEC championship for the Crimson Tide that year, and then transferring as a graduate. Had a great season, great beginning of the season last year, struggled towards the end of it. Um, but I think he's the reason they were able to come back against Baylor and beat Baylor, um, and that was in uh, Waco and not at not in Norman, not in friendly territory. With all of the stuff that he's able to accomplish in college, I think that he's he's a good quarterback. And hopefully you want these guys that aren't necessarily traditional type quarterbacks to learn to be more traditional. Um, that's what people hoped for with Tebow. It never really happened. But Jalen Hurts throws the ball a whole lot better than Tebow did coming out of college and then learning behind Carson Wentz and having Doug Peterson as a quarter as a coach who knows how to use different weapons. Because um, if you know anything about the Philly special play, Trey Burton, the guy who actually threw the pass to Carson Wentz in the back of the end zone, is a former quarterback as well that was converted to a tight end. So I think Jalen Hurts is the right type of guy to come in there and play whatever position the team needs at first. And then if he ever does get a shot at quarterback, he's going to try and make the best of it. And I, I would put money on him to be able to do so. A.J. Epinesa from Iowa goes to Buffalo at 54. That's a steal. And Buffalo's defense was already one of the top in the league last year uh, with Ed Oliver coming in, replacing uh, their their longtime nose tackle. I can't think of his name right now. That's a good pickup for them. Sean McDermott knows the type of attitude that his Bills play with, and, and he goes right along with it. Epinesa has that same nasty Iowa mentality that started with their wrestling team and then has trickled over to their football team with Brandon Scherf uh, in the off in the NFL now, obviously. And then Tristan Wirfs is going to be, I think, one of the better offensive linemen from this year's class. J.K. Dobbins going to Baltimore after they traded with New England for their second-round pick. So at this point, New England has only made one pick when they were supposed to have at least two or three. Baltimore picking up Dobbins is scary because they know that they have a guy in Mark Ingram who can can play, but he's getting a little bit on the older side now. You have another guy who can match with Lamar Jackson, and J.K. Dobbins, Lamar Jackson, is one of the fastest offensive backfields I can remember in a long time. And if you have a read option where you either have to chase down J.K. Dobbins or chase down Lamar Jackson or corral one of the two of them, possibly both depending on if Jackson reads the play right, that is deadly. Um, that, I think, is the pick that's going to make sure Baltimore is still the best team in the NFC North. Um, a little bit little bit disheartening, not going to lie, as a Bengals fan. In round three, the Bengals picked up Logan Wilson with the first pick in the round, linebacker from Wyoming. Um, I'm a little bit hesitant for the Bengals to take guys that they're going to need to coach and develop just because their coaching staff hasn't proven to me that they're able to do that very well. So that's going to be interesting to see how that works out. Arizona picks up picked up another tackle in the third round. I think that's good for them. Um, Josh Jones out of Houston was ranked in the top 10 of offensive linemen in this year's draft. Denver picks picked up Michael Ojemuda from Iowa, the cornerback. 
I think this is who they're going to try and use to get over the fact that they lost Chris Harris Jr. to the Chargers. But like I said before, when talking about the Chris Harris Jr. stuff, you're going from the greatest slot cornerback in the modern era of the NFL, and now you're trying to see if a rookie can come in and be even half as good as as CHJ was for a long time for the Broncos. That's going to be interesting. And then at 83, the Broncos traded with Pittsburgh and picked up Lloyd Cushenberry, who was the center for LSU. I've been very vocal with my praise of the LSU offensive line from last season. They were voted the best unit um, in college football last season. They kept Joe Burrow upright. There's a reason Joe Burrow was able to throw for 60 touchdowns and wasn't really sacked all that much. He wasn't having to get out of the way. He was able to keep his eyes downfield because he had a good enough offensive line. So that is the first pick that I think the Broncos really needed to make. And if they would have done that in the first round after trading back, that would have been great too. They could have picked Cushionberry in the second round, that would have been good value for him. Um, at least they got somebody. That's That was the big thing. So they have Lloyd Cushionberry, so they are able to plug him in on an offensive line. They have Reisner, so they were able to find a couple of pieces that will be the solid foundations of their offensive line. only bad thing is they still have Juwan James at right tackle. They still have Garrett Bowles at left tackle. And uh, other than right now, center or wherever Cushionberry is going to play because he's played guard as well. Center and guard are the only places that they have real guys that are going to be able to play at a high level like they need them to. Um, so they're still, they still are in need of a lot of other help pieces on the offensive line. They also had another pick in the third round from San Francisco. They picked up McTelvin, a game from Arkansas defensive lineman. Um, that's because I think that they're going to lose Derek Wolf. So they're trying to find somebody who can come in and, and rotate with Shelby Harris and whoever else they're going to have rushing the passer from the interior. Um, I don't think he's going to be as productive as Wolf is going to be, but I think for the price that they're going to have to pay him as he's not a first-round pick as a rookie, I think that's going to be in the long run more beneficial than it would to try and pay Derek Wolf to stay around and then only get a few more years out of him you're able to free up money to, to spend in other places. Another CU Buffalo goes off the board at 103. Philadelphia, I believe this is a compensatory pick because it has an asterisk next to it. So one of the guys that they lost in free agency was able to gift them this pick, and they picked up Davion Taylor from Colorado. Not quite sure. Um, haven't really watched him play, but like I said about the Pac-12 defense, not necessarily the best place to find players of the future, but with a compensatory pick, it's basically a free pick. And uh, I think the the Eagles coaching staff, I would trust a lot more than a lot of the other coaching staffs around the league to be able to, to gar- grab a guy, coach him, and then be able to be a productive member at the next level. Round four, the Bengals for the first pick of round four picked Akeem Davis Gaither from Appalachian State. Um, App State's been a really good program since moving up to Division One A after being the Division One AA team that knocked off Michigan. That was what they were famous for for a while. They were a, a big two and up game for a lot of the Division One teams, and they've taken that money and then really bolstered their program. So I think Akeem Davis Gaither, having been a part of a of a place that turned itself around and turned into a powerhouse, maybe that's why the Bengals would would look to him. 
and and pick up another linebacker after they had already drafted a linebacker out of Wyoming because he knows what it takes to go from a place where nobody has any respect for you to possibly moving back up and, and figuring out how to be uh, how, how to be a leader and how to take a team that doesn't necessarily know how to win yet and show them how to win after being such a loser for so long. Um, and also another offensive lineman from LSU, Shadiq, Sadiq Charles, goes to Washington. They needed help on that, especially because they got rid of their longtime long long time left tackle just looking up to make sure Trent Williams Trent Williams if you're you've been paying attention with him and how he's been fighting with the Washington brass for the last few years um, there was a lump on his head and the team misdiagnosed it mishandled it so he wasn't able to play two seasons ago and then last season obviously um, Dan Snyder made it impossible for the Redskins to have any type of success Uh, I don't think Dwayne Haskins was the right pick for them in last year's draft just because I knew that there was quarterbacks that Washington whether they picked Haskins or not in last year's draft was still going to be in the top five of this year and I think they could have gotten a guy like if they, I, I feel like if they didn't have Haskins, they would have been able to pull the trigger on a guy like Tua or a guy like Herbert. Um, but now they're stuck with maybe not the most talented of quarterbacks, so they're just trying to bolster anybody around him so that he can maybe learn to grow and become a, a better pro quarterback because it's really based off of all... It's really based uh, off how many guys that you can put around a quarterback like that when he's not going to be talented enough to transcend the guys around him. What did Denver do in this round? I'm sure I'm missing their pick. Round four. Um, Broncos did not make a selection in round four. They never had a fourth round pick or they traded it away at a different time. Don't really see any other picks in this draft. They did. They traded with San Francisco. So the pick that got them... I don't I don't know why I... Because they traded with San Francisco with one of their picks in the third round. And this San Francisco used the pick that they had from the Broncos in the fourth round. And then fifth round, um, Bengals picked up Khalid Kareem from Notre Dame, picking up some uh, extra help on the defensive side of the ball. And I think the best way to build a team is from the inside out. Obviously, I was an offensive lineman, and I know how much a, a big front seven on both sides helps. And if he can be... Uh, a really good player go along with Sam Hubbard and uh, Michael Johnson and guys like Carlos Dunlap who've been there for a while if these guys can carry forward the defensive line because for as bad as the Bengals have been for a long time they've always had a pretty decent defensive line and can rush the passer pretty well and I think that'll help help them out moving forward I like that pick for them still don't think that they they're going to move anywhere I think they're still going to be um in the bottom of their of that conference, I don't see them 
turning themselves around for another year or so. Hopefully I'm wrong. Hopefully Joe Burrow is the transcendent player everybody says he's going to be, but there's always that chance that it's not going to work out. Denver had a compensatory pick at the end of this round. At 178, they picked Justin Strnad from Wake Forest. Uh, Don't know anything really about him. But the ACC, other than Clemson, doesn't really play defense. It's the same, similar to trying to find defensive players from the Pac-12, well, or the Big 12. Well, they don't really play defense, so it's tough. Um, but they they've been able to have a, a good amount of linebackers, and, and now he he'll be able to go in there with Vaughn. Hopefully, Vaughn is is able to recover from the coronavirus. And then he'll ha- also have Bradley Chubb in that same room. So he- he's got good people to learn from. And then in round six, the Bengals finally picked up some offensive line help. Hakeem Adeniji from Kansas. Big guy. Um, Kansas offensive lineman. I know the Broncos know that Reisner was a huge calming presence on the offense last year. And I think... Having played with him, maybe that's that's what they saw as well. I still need to watch some some film. Maybe that's what I'll do for next week's episode: is watch film on all the Bengals picks, and and then I'll be able to actually give a a real grade. I'll do that for the the Bengals and Broncos, and then I'll probably do the Giants and the Jets because those are the the main four fan, four teams that my family pays attention to. Um, with everybody and where their fandom lies. Broncos at 181 traded with the Redskins, and they picked up Natane Muti from Fresno State. Um, I hope that uh, – I don't mean any offense by this, but that does sound Islander, and I know Islanders are, are normally really good and can pick up the game pretty well. And as a guard, he also has the ability to play center. So they have – they're starting to fortify – the interior of their offensive line, I still think that you need at least one anchor at tackle to be able to help out the guys on the inside, but uh, it's never bad to have multiple guards and centers that can play guard and center at, at a high level. That way you can rotate a little bit, maybe have a swing guy at one, one position or the other. And then for round seven, the Bengals picked Marcus Bailey from Purdue. Uh, linebacker so they ended up going out of all of the rounds so round one they had quarterback with burrow wide receiver in round two with higgins linebacker in round three with wilson from wyoming four round four they also got another linebacker so they had three linebackers out of their seven picks in this year's draft which i didn't really think that linebacker was any more stacked than usual but like I said, I haven't really watched enough film on any of their picks to be able to say that for certain. I'll be able to break that down a little bit more next week, um, and I'll be sure to do that. We'll also talk about the last dance next week. In the seventh round, let's see what the Broncos did or if there was anybody else who made kind of a surprise pick. They picked Tyree Cleveland with one of their compensatory picks at 252. Then they also got an edge rusher, Derek Tutska from North Dakota State. Uh, North Dakota State, one of the best FCS programs, Division One AA programs of all time, and, and had a streak of Division One AA national championships, and, and that's a good good pick for him. Good pick for the Broncos. Uh, three receivers. I didn't think that they needed to get three receivers. 
But uh, the the one good thing that I see out of the skill position picks that the Broncos have made is that they're definitely moving forward with uh, a Drew Locke. They're giving him the weapons so that they're not going to be able to say, well, he didn't have a running back. He didn't have receivers to throw to. He's got Melvin Gordon, Philip Lindsay. Philip Lindsay, two-time thousand-yard rusher. Melvin Gordon, touchdown machine, can catch the ball out of the backfield if he stays healthy. And now they have Cortland Sutton, um, Melvin Gordon, and Noah Fant for their top three passing targets. Their first-round pick, obviously, with Jerry Judy. Um, Judy, I think, was the better of the two Alabama receivers, so not saying that he's not going to be productive. I just don't think that was the right pick for the Broncos at that point. And then also K.J. Hamler from Penn State, and then now at 252 with Tyree Cleveland, another speed guy from Florida. There's going to be a lot of competition on the outsides for the Broncos moving forward to next season. Overall, I thought the draft went pretty smoothly for the first time that it was digital. There wasn't as many technical difficulties as I thought there was going to be. I thought at some point some team was going to say, hey, I tried to make that pick and uh, it said that it sent on my end and it didn't get there in enough time. I also think Goodell, uh, for as much crap as people give him, and I'm guilty of that as well, I think that he... I don't know if there was another commissioner, maybe Pete Rozelle, maybe that could have been able to deal with this pandemic um, and keep the popularity of the league and been able to pull this thing together. I think that he deserves a lot of kudos. Um, the draft had a NFL draft-a-thon where they were taking donations to help people. If you could donate, they were going to take money and then try and help people get back out of this pandemic that we have put everybody in. And then also he, he was interacting with the fans kept everybody engaged and um, I only watched the first round pick for pick and then I was just kind of keeping up on social media with the other rounds but if you did watch all the way through I think that Goodell was doing a good job keeping the fans interested Trey Wingo I think don't necessarily like him as a personality on ESPN but I think he hosted pretty well and with the guy the fact that they have two rival networks and were able to have people from both networks and keep that kind of thing going with them. I think that was good for the league as a whole. And I think now NFL Network and ESPN, once everything starts coming back around, if we hopefully, hopefully we end up having football season at some point in the fall, they'll have been bolstered by this as well. Um, Got to see a lot of different people. I normally only watch on ESPN and now having NFL Network guys there like Daniel Jeremiah, I have another person that I can go to um, for the future when I'm doing these draft breakdowns of guys who are used to be um, scouts for teams in the NFL and now they're draft analysts for the major networks. Uh, Daniel Jeremiah is similar to the Mike Mayock um, type of person. But I think for the first communal sporting event since this coronavirus happened, it needed to happen. I think that it was a good thing whether or not you think sports are important enough to keep going in a time like this. Um, I think that people love having some sort of distraction, and if sports are able to serve as that sort of distraction, that's just good for everybody, whether or not you think they deserve the money that they're going to get, whether or not you think that it's necessary for this to be happening in a time like this when a lot of people are struggling with the virus and dying from the virus and having to deal with sending loved ones to work because their um, health 
health personnel or they work at the grocery store that needs to stay open so that people can continue to supply themselves so that we can all get through this time. This was one of those first times where we actually had a full-blown distraction. I think The Last Dance does that as well because a lot of people like to watch it live. And that's another thing where we're starting to see a communal sense of sports. Um, and, and for a, a lot of people in this country, sports is a unifying thing. Whether or not you like the same team, you like the same sport, it's fun to trash talk each other as well when you don't enjoy rooting for the same team. So I think that overall this is a good thing for the league, sports, and the country as a whole. And now we're on the tail end of this thing, hopefully, at least the tail end of the first type of thing that we have to worry about. And now we're going to be able to continue to move forward and have a lot more to talk about, a lot more to break down Um and I think that this is a good sign to possibly end up finishing 2020 with some sports and then being able to bounce back in 2021 with the rest of the leagues. This was a good thing. And I'm glad the NFL, and I give the NFL all the credit in the world. Um, they, they, they don't normally handle stuff like this where it's bigger than the game very well. And I think that this is as good as I've seen them handle anything maybe except for um, 9-11 and coming out of that for a long time that's going to be the end of our episode today another almost two hour um, show but the the draft brings up a lot of talking points and this is the time of the year where fans like to decide whether or not their team is going to be better than they were the year before and um, I, I'm happy that if you are still listening that you allow me to give my two cents on stuff and you can agree with me, not agree with me. I'd love to debate you on social media or um, anything like that. You leave a comment on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the podcast if you're able to comment on it and I'll try and find it. Um, I do think that this is my favorite time of the year. This is my favorite episode. The last three episodes are my favorite episodes of the sports show that we've done because I've been able to show my knowledge and give my two cents on stuff that I think actually does matter in the world of sports um, with the bonus episode and the two episodes that I've done on the draft so far now. Um, thank you guys for listening. Remember to, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, subscribe, give a five-star rating, and leave a review because that helps the show more than anything um, obviously download and listen to the show and if you haven't listened to a certain episode go back and listen to those because there's little tidbits and stuff that you'll find in all of them we also every Thursday just release a regular episode where it's not necessarily going to focus on sports but we could talk about sports um, Kyle was again, on again last week with the Idiots Anonymous and we talked about a lot of stuff uh, we watched Bloodsport on um, last Monday and then got to talk about it on the podcast that came out Thursday and we found all the different holes in it and uh, all the different things that were cool in the 80s but really haven't aged that well and now they're cool like a drafty toilet so be sure to keep checking out the podcast we're going to keep putting out content hopefully we start learning and, and learning what you guys want to hear uh, both in the, the sports episodes and the non-sports episodes so that we keep continuing to grow a fan base. I, I've heard from a few of the people that I know listen a lot, and they've been saying that they've been enjoying the content over this quarantine and, and the pandemic, the stay-at-home order. Like I said, hopefully we're on the backside of that and we're starting to ease our way back into normal life at some point. 
Um, and we're starting to take those first steps now. So thank you for listening. Follow the show on Twitter at COAPod73. My personal Twitter at Jimmy Pilato. My Instagram at Proud underscore WAP. Uh, follow along with that stuff. I'm on TikTok as well um, at Jimmy Pilato. And uh, we'll keep bringing you guys more podcast episodes. Um, this has been the Italian Stallion, Jimmy Pilato. Thank you for being the center of attention from the WAP Cave. We'll see you guys on Thursday for another episode. Let's go.